0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. John 13, 1-17 It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. then lord simon peter replied not just my feet but my hands and my head as well jesus answered those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet their whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you for he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean when he had finished washing their feet Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them.
1: Good morning. My name's Jez, if you've not met me before, if you have, it's also Jez. Very nice to be here. And as was mentioned earlier, we've been going through a series of questions that people have about the Christian faith. This was based on a survey that was done with a big group of people in Ireland. And we've come to the end of that series today with this nice simple question, is Christianity the problem or the solution? So thanks, Steve, for assigning that to me. Nice, nice, easy, easy one to address on a Sunday morning. And I wonder how you would begin to answer that question. Is Christianity the problem or the solution? Well, the first thing to say is it's clearly an enormous question, isn't it? Christianity has had an enormous influence on societies around the world in many different contexts for 2,000 years. So sadly, uh, although I'll try and cover a lot of ground, we can't address absolutely every facet of it in 25 minutes. But I think the heart of the question is this. Christianity is sometimes called the good news, but has it really been good news for the societies where Christianity has had an impact? Has it made them better Or has it made them worse? For the individuals whose lives have been touched by Christianity, has it made their lives better or worse? So that's the question. And I'm going to begin by considering the case against Christianity. And there are, again, many, many critiques that people make, and I've selected six of them. And as I do, I'm conscious I'm touching on topics here which all deserve a lot more unpacking. And I can only just touch on them very briefly. And I'm also conscious some of them might raise questions, might raise pain for people here. And if you do want to speak about them further or pray into them further afterwards, then people will be available to do that. So six critiques of Christianity. And the first one is this, power and poverty. You should see that coming up on the screen behind, power and poverty. So some people have made the case that Christianity has essentially been a tool that has been used to protect the privileged, the powerful, and the rich, and to preserve their position over the poor and oppressed. And the most famous person to make this critique was Karl Marx, and he wrote in the mid-19th century this famous line, religion is the opium of the people, the sigh of the oppressed soul. And one commentator summarizes Marx's view on religion by saying this, religion supports the established order by suggesting that it is somehow ordained by divine authority, and it consoles the oppressed and exploited by offering them in heaven what they are denied upon earth. And I think if we look back in history, it's only fair to say that we can see this dynamic at work. There are many examples of autocratic leaders who said, God is on my side, and it is God's will that I have the power and that you obey me. Many examples of people like that. And many examples, too, of churches that became fabulously wealthy in very poor societies. And if you go on any trip around Europe, you'll see the fabulous cathedrals and churches full of wealth, usually built at times when ordinary people were desperately poor and using the money of those desperately poor people. So power and poverty, the first critique. The second linked idea... Uh, is that Christianity has facilitated racism. And this is an argument that a number of people have made. A few years ago, I read the fascinating autobiography of the American civil rights activist Malcolm X, and it really is a fascinating book. And Malcolm X was raised the son of a Baptist pastor, but in the racist society in which he grew up in, he began to see Christianity as a tool that was used to entrench racial privilege, And he said this, The white man has taught us to shout and sing and pray until we die, to wait until death for some dreamy heaven in the hereafter, while this white man has his milk and honey in the streets, paved with golden dollars right here on this earth. That was Malcolm X's critique. And if we step back and look in history, we can see many other examples of people calling themselves Christian, engaging in deeply racist practices, whether we talk about slavery or acts of violence or even genocide by people calling themselves Christian. So that's another critique. Then there's the issue of gender and sexuality, a third charge that has been made to argue that Christianity has not been good news. And there are many examples, again, that we could cite around the world of people being mistreated by Christians on account of their gender or their sexuality. Sometimes, It's been women in general who have been disadvantaged. Or sometimes it's been women who perhaps became pregnant outside marriage. Sometimes it's been uh, people with a certain sexual orientation or transgender people. And we could find many instances of people in those categories being maltreated, demeaned, stigmatized, institutionalized, exploited by people and institutions calling themselves Christian So that's the third contention. Thank you very much. So six contentions, six critiques against Christianity. We've seen three. Now the fourth, there's the issue of violence and political conflict. Uh, I had a, a, a chap I knew in my university football team, and I don't know if many of you have a Facebook account, but there's a space where you can put your religious affiliation. And under religion, he wrote, Do you want to start a war? Just use religion. Now, I don't think that's the most sophisticated critique that's ever been made, but there's something in there that a lot of people would identify with, that they essentially see religion, religious belief, as the cause of conflict around the world. And there are, again, many examples we could talk of. Famously, some people would point to the Crusades as an example of appalling religious violence or... Uh, On our own continent of Europe, some people might talk about the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, which left between 4 and 12 million people dead, and which had a very significant religious component to it. And even to this day, sad to say, there are many communities around the world where violence and sectarianism between Christian communities is a feature of life. And sad to say, Christians have also been implicated in persecuting Jewish people and other religious and minority groups throughout history. So that's a fourth critique, uh, um, violence and political conflict. Then a fifth critique, and I I think perhaps talking to people in Ireland today, this might be the biggest one, is the question of hypocrisy. Now I used to live in Vienna a few years ago and I was once having my hair cut and was speaking about uh, the church with my hairdresser and she used a nice phrase in German, about hypocritical church leaders, and she said, they preach water, but drink wine. They preach water, but drink wine, and there's something in that which captures what lots of people think, that a lot of church leaders say one thing, but they do another, and many people would point to church leaders who have used their position to engage in the great crime of child abuse, or to cover it up, or they would point to church leaders who have preached love and forgiveness, but in their own lives they've been anything but. And maybe some of you like the author Roald Dahl, wonderful books he's written, and uh, actually the two books I like most are his autobiograph- autobiographical books, and in Boy, which is his account of growing up and going to boarding schools in England and Wales in the early 20th century, he describes one headmaster that he had at a boarding school, school in England who was a clergyman, And who used to take chapel services and preach about love and kindness and forgiveness. But this clergyman would viciously beat the boys under his care. And Dahl said he even seemed to take pleasure in it. And Roald Dahl's conclusion was that if this man was one of God's chosen salesmen, then there must be something wrong about the whole business. Hypocrisy leaves a bitter taste. Then the sixth thing, and perhaps a more personal thing for some people, the personal dimension. Some people would just say Christianity has been bad news in my life. I spoke to one person who said that when she was a girl, she used to go to church, she was in a very religious context, and it had just been a burden to her. And when she left it, she had felt liberated. She was glad to be out of the church. And I've had other friends who have said, it was just too hard to live as a Christian when it was so countercultural to do so. So, six arguments, six contentions that Christianity has not been good news, and there are more that could be said, but that's just a little taste of some of the arguments people make against Christianity, and I'll take some water. So, where, where does that leave us? I wonder, how would you respond to that if you're a Christian and you feel like, wow, this has been a broadside against Christianity. How would you respond to that? Well, there are many, many things that could be said, but let me just offer a few initial responses to those charges. Firstly, we need to recognize there is such a thing as counterfeit Christians. Not every crime done in the name of Christ by someone who says they're a Christian was really done by a genuine Christian. And Jesus himself, if you read the Gospels, warns, of church leaders who would be wolves in sheep's clothing, as he puts it. And he also says that in every church community, there'll be a mixture of people who are genuine followers of Jesus and those who aren't. And certainly all of the the charges against Christianity that I just listed were, were not carried out by people who were genuine Christians in every case. And I think that was particularly the case at periods where there was a lot of Christian nominalism, where there were societies where practically everyone called themselves a Christian. So there's such a thing as counterfeit Christians. And there's also such a thing as counterfeit Christianity. There have been many periods in history, I would argue, where so-called Christianity has become seriously distorted when compared with the model of the New Testament church. And often this has been when Christianity has been closely linked with state power. And for those who like history, you might look back to the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in the fourth century as the first moment where state power and Christianity began to be linked and lots of challenges flowed from that. But in many different ways throughout history, Christianity has become distorted and uh, has become very different from the New Testament model. And I think we need to recognize as well that alongside this distorted model, there's always been an authentic model There have always been people whose lives were changed by Christ, who responded to God's love by acting in love and care for those around them, by founding schools and hospitals, often by being the first people to do so, by reaching out to the poorest and neediest and loneliest and most lost in societies. But sadly, that's often been obscured, hasn't it, by people who've done crimes in Christ's name. And all of those wrong things might make you angry, as they make me angry. When you listen to those six charges, it's hard not to feel angry if you're a Christian at those things that have been done. And if you hate those injustices done in Christ's name, then you're in good company, because there has also been such a thing as what I call Christian prophets. Christian prophets, people who have risen up from within the church to challenge the injustices they have seen in the world around them. And if you have read in the Old Testament, you'll know that the prophets in the Old Testament were people given a message from God, and usually that message from God was a calling to the people of God to say sorry for what they had done and to turn back to a more full, more complete, more just, more righteous expression of their faith. And there are many examples in history of Christians who've risen up to challenge injustices they've seen around them, and injustice is perpetrated by other people calling themselves Christian. And I think one of the best and certainly the most famous example from the 20th century was the Baptist minister, Dr. Martin Luther King, speaking into the context of American segregation. And if you read his sermons and listen to them, and I highly recommend listen to some of his sermons on YouTube, they are powerful, powerful oratory, powerful content. And his language and his ideas are absolutely full of a biblical ethic. In his final sermon in Memphis, Tennessee, just the night before he was shot, he preached on the Good Samaritan and he called on people to show solidarity with others who were oppressed, like the Samaritan had. In his commitment to nonviolence in the face of provocation and relentless violence against him and his movement, he embodied Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount around nonviolence and peaceful Resistance. And in his most famous speech at the Washington Monument, when he spoke of his dream, the I Have a Dream speech, he quoted from the prophet Amos when he called for justice to roll like a mighty river and righteousness like a never failing stream. He was a Christian man calling for the church, calling for society to reform to be more like Jesus' example. So there have been Christian prophets as well. Fourthly, The question, uh, there's also the question of the moral compass. And last week, Steve looked in some detail at the question of where does morality come from, the problems with a a, a man-made system of morality, and the strength of the Christian argument for a God-given morality. So I'll not go over that again, but do listen back to Steve's sermon from last week if you want to think about that more. But the thing I want to introduce here is that wherever you think morality comes from, Are very good reasons for thinking that the kind of moral framework that we have in uh, in our societies today has a huge debt owed to Christianity. I'm currently reading an excellent book called Dominion by a historian called Tom Holland. It came out in 2019, and Holland says that he doesn't believe in God, so he's not making a faith based argument, but he traces the influence of Christianity over the years. And he writes about the very positive impact Christianity has had on our contemporary moral frameworks. He writes first of studying ancient civilizations. And maybe some of you like classics and ancient civilizations. And he loved studying Rome and Athens and King Leonidas of Sparta. And he found them fascinating. But he also found in them a bewilderingly different moral framework from his own. He writes of extreme callousness and cruelty and if you read his book there are actually stomach churning descriptions of the cruelty and callousness of the ancient world and he writes about those societies having any uh, having no uh, concept whatsoever of the poor and the weak having any intrinsic value and holland wrote this and it should come up on the screen for you he wrote these words today even as belief in god fades across the west The countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not a Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly, and proudly Christian. So Holland is arguing, if our societies care about the poor and the weak, if they think it's better better not to inflict suffering on people wantonly, then that is a Christian inheritance. So uh, I think from his argument it flows that many of the people making criticisms of Christianity for a record of oppression and racism, what have you, are making that from within a moral framework that uh, has been hugely influenced by Christianity. If you like, they're using Christian arguments to critique the injustice of the church, even if they don't recognize it so clearly as Tom Holland did. So Christianity has left, if you like, a moral inheritance in many of our societies. And there's one more reply to the charges against Christianity, and it's the most important reply, the central reply, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. We just had John chapter 13 read to us. And in that passage in John 13, Jesus and his disciples are gathering for a special meal, a celebratory meal of Passover. And uh, they, were, they were in the town of Jerusalem, which would have been full of animals coming to be sacrificed, full of pilgrims, would have been hot and dusty. The disciples and Jesus would all have been wearing open sandals and getting their feet all covered in the muck of the streets. And then something happened shocking and countercultural happened. If you have your passage there, open it and have a little look down at verse 4. And in verse 4, we see Jesus taking off his garment, getting water, reaching down, taking those mucky, dirty feet of his disciples, taking them in his hands and washing them. And this was something completely shocking and countercultural. Jesus was his disciples, rabbi, their teacher, their leader, the, the most prestigious one amongst them, you might say. But he stooped down and did what was the job of the lowliest servant. He washed their feet. And in doing that, he showed them that he had come not to be served by them, but to serve them. And indeed, his greatest act of service, if you were to read on in your booklet, was that that next day, he would die on the cross, On the cross, Jesus, in the supreme sacrifice, would give himself in the place of his people, would take their punishment, would subject himself to the pain, the degradation, the physical, emotional, spiritual torture of a Roman crucifixion. He came, as the book of Mark puts it, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then glance down at verse 14 and 15, and see what he called his disciples to do. He says there, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And He wasn't talking about literal foot washing, but about the calling on all followers of Jesus to do as he did in loving, in serving, in putting the needs of others before their own needs, a huge challenge to his people. And so how does Jesus offer a reply to those six charges against Christianity that we heard at the beginning? Well, Karl Marx said Christianity was a tool used to oppress the poor and preserve the power of the rich. The Bible says that Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Malcolm X said Christianity was a tool used to oppress non-white people. In the book of Revelation, we read that people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will gather before the throne of God in a community unified in Christ Jesus. We read in the book of Galatians, you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the community that Jesus came to create. Some people say Jesus has oppressed women and minority groups. Well, Jesus elevated women. He respected women. They were amongst his disciples. They were the first witnesses to his resurrection. He said to all who would follow him, come and I will give you life and life to the full. And that offer was to everyone even the people on the margins and the outcast in society. Some say Christianity is a force for political violence. Jesus exhorted his disciples to turn the other cheek to pray for those who persecuted them. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Some people condemn religious hypocrites, while no one condemned them more than Jesus did. And to the hypocrites of his day, he said, woe to you, You brood of vipers, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside you're full of uncleanness and death. No one condemns and hates religious hypocrisy more than Jesus. So when the church has failed, and the church has often failed, it isn't because the faith is defective. It's because our faith has been too shallow. The church has failed when we haven't followed Jesus closely enough. The church has failed when it has been too mixed up with a love of money, of power, of pleasure, of worldly privilege, and has not been influenced enough by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the answer, the solution to all of these things is Jesus Christ. And the answer for us is not to abandon the faith, But it is to seek a deeper faith, a closer walk with Jesus. I love that old hymn that says, just a closer walk with Grant me, Jesus, this my plea. That's what we need, a closer walk with Jesus to live out our calling better. So where does that leave us? Well, we're coming in to land, and I want to leave three challenges with everyone who says they're a follower of Jesus. And the first challenge is this. We need to say sorry. If you're a Christian and you look at that history of all that has been done wrong in the name of the church, your heart will sorrow as mine did. We need to say sorry. And if you've been hurt by the church, you've been hurt by Christians, I do want to say sorry. The church has often got it wrong. The church has often messed up. And if that's your story, if you're Pain and hurt, Visa said, Come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His arms are open wide. Come to him afresh this day. So we need to say sorry. We need to say sorry on behalf of the church, and we need to confess our own failings to God as well. All of us are part of this. We're all implicated in ways the church has fallen short in one way or another, and we need to say sorry. For our own failings before God. Uh, Neil helpfully led confession for us earlier, and there are wonderful confessions that have been written in churches over the years. I like one from the Anglican Church that says uh, that we have sinned by negligence, by weakness, by our own deliberate fault. And isn't that true? And as I look at it, that's true. So we need to say sorry. Secondly, this day is marked by many Christians as Reformation Sunday. And the 16th century reformers had a little slogan, Semper Reformanda, always keep reforming. They called on every Christian to continually engage in the act of reforming the church. what did they mean by that? They meant keep coming back to the Bible. Keep coming back to the example of Jesus. Keep testing yourself against it. Keep having it like a a plumb line or an x-ray to test your thoughts, your motives, your attitudes, your actions. Keep returning to your calling to be, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, to be people of grace and truth, to be people of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let's keep reforming, keep coming back to those ideals, keep seeking God's power to live that out. And then thirdly, let's make sure we, as a church, are good news. Let's make sure we're good news to those who encounter us. We might not persuade someone that Christianity's record throughout history has been good news, but let's persuade them that Jesus is good news. Let's let them see when they encounter us and our community that Jesus really is good news for them in the here and now, in their free time, in our home life. And may our community be a place of love and joy and welcome. And I hope you see a little bit of that Maybe you're not following Jesus today. Maybe you're not a regular part of our community. But I hope you see something of what we're about here at CCC, that we're a people who see our failings, who are not perfect, but we're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to model ourselves on him and be full of his life. So is Christianity the problem or the solution? Jesus Christ is the solution. Let's pray together. And as I pray, let me invite the band back up. Let's stand together. I don't know how God has been speaking to you as we've talked of these things. Big topics, painful topics, some of them. But I hope you've seen something of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the solution. Let's pray together. Jesus, in your name is mercy, east to west forgiveness, freedom from all shame. Savior, your name is Redeemer, precious new life giver. Living Word of God, Jesus, we pray we would see you today. We pray that you would draw our hearts to you. Whether we're far from you or close, draw us nearer to you again, we pray. Would we see that in you is the solution, that you are the one we've been longing for, that all who long for justice see perfect justice in the Lord Jesus Christ, that all who long for equality between people see it in the people of Christ. That all who want to see a a, a leadership that isn't one that makes the use of its own power for its own ends, but uses it for the service of others, see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. That perfect fullness and satisfaction is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.